Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where we are into the pool and still swimming with the swans. Taking a look at Capote versus the swans currently on FX and Hulu. And investigators, we are only in episode one of the breakdown of this enchanting series, Alicia's Version. In the last episode, we made it through the first 13 minutes. We're going to progress into the next 13 minutes or so in this one with an airplane ride on the PJ, the private jet, getting Truman to babe, Truman Capote singing for his supper in 1955, and how it all connects back around to Anne Woodward. With no time to waste, y'all, let's investigate. back from the first commercial break in Capote versus the Swans, entering into this scene here in 1955 with Bill Paley at work. Treat Williams, who is always a treat, in his last acting role here before his tragic death in 2023. Treat Williams portraying Bill Paley. We open this B block with Bill Paley doing important CBS business and getting a call from David. David O. Selznick. So much history about David O. Selznick. Our man Dominic Dunn is all over Selznick. And his first and second wives, Irene Mayer Selznick and Jennifer Jones. Remember, Irene is the daughter of Louis B. Mayer, sister to Edie Mayer Getz. It's all too much. We have talked about Dominic Dunn's connection with these players throughout our episodes, and all of these players, Selznick, David, Irene, and Jennifer will be coming back around again in fuller ways in future stories. Remember, Bill Paley here has been running CBS since 1928, a long time standing when we get here in 1955. Dorothy, Bill's first wife, out. Babe, second wife, in. Bill and Babe have been together about eight years now with a Whole different way in this marriage. Babe is devoted to Bill in a way that Dorothy was never going to be. And Bill Paley's kind of a big deal dude. The attention to detail on the weekly schedule shown in that CBS boardroom is top notch. Again, huge kudos to the entire set design team. Holy cats, y'all are nailing it. Here we are making it to the infamous airplane scene. Oh, my. David O. Selznick calls Bill Paley. Hey, is it cool if we bring Truman on the PJ? This is accurate. David Selznick asks about Truman. Can he come? No last name is given. And Bill Paley thinks David Selznick is talking about the former president, not the writer Wonderkind coming on board. Truman Capote knows David Selznick and his beautiful second wife, Jennifer Jones, from Truman Capote's most recent time in Hollywood. Jennifer Jones is one of the swans of Truman from the Hollywood area. Marilyn Monroe is another. Truman Capote had his New York set of swans before his Hollywood set. That New York set includes Carol Marcus, Roy and Matthau, Miss Maid of Moonbeams, Gloria Vanderbilt, 
Una O'Neill, Phoebe Pierce Vreeland, all back long before his Hollywood swan set came around. Back in Monroeville, Alabama, Truman Capote had his mom, Lily May, known as Nina in New York, as well as Harper Lee and all of his aunts. I do drop many of those names in here as they are coming back around in my version of the watch-along. The thing you need to know is that Truman has been collecting women all his life and whatever coterie they form into his world at the time it's happening. Maybe Truman has been that black swan in that first scene since birth. I keep going back to that opening scene. A little bit of a thing here. I want to introduce to y'all a particular stock market term. It's called the black swan. In the stock market, a black swan is an unpredictable event that is beyond what is normally expected of a situation and has potentially severe consequences. Black swan events are characterized by their extreme rarity, severe impact, and the widespread insistence that they were obvious in hindsight. This is the butterfly effect, kind of, but in swan's language. Listen to that again. A black swan is an unpredictable event beyond what is normally expected of a situation, has potentially severe consequences, characterized by their extreme rarity, severe impact, and widespread insistence. They were obvious in hindsight. I'm only 15 minutes into episode one of this program, and this is what I'm thinking of. Go back to that opening scene, the black swan swimming in the lake of the white swans. This may be, or maybe not, Chekhov's gun, the black swan event. Of course, Bill Paley is going to assume it's Harry Truman. It's hard to tell who is the most surprised here. And the lady in question, of course, Babe is there, but the other lady in question, Jennifer Jones, the wife of David O. Selznick. Something you might want to know is that Jennifer Jones and Lenny Dunn, Nick's wife, are considered lookalikes. Jennifer Jones and Lenny become very good friends when the Dunns make it out to California. This particular private jet scene, it is so well done. Jennifer Jones in the background, right in 1955 when this happens, is the current swan of Truman Capote that he is going to discard once Babe has entered into his web. Jennifer's not necessarily lost, but she is about to get ditched and replaced. Thanks for the introduction, Jennifer. Truman's going to move on from his Hollywood swan to his new upgraded Park Avenue beauty with this private jet Jamaica weekend. Truman Capote on the pretty plane, a few martinis and smokes later, Babe and Truman Capote are besties. It is that easy for Truman Capote to play. Again, ladies, I don't know why you thought you were dealing with anything different. The next scene, still in 1955, with Bill and Babe in Jamaica, all their friends, the high society set. This Louisa Firth character is fictional here, but again, Bill Paley, notorious philanderer. She is brought in as a conglomeration of, I think, quite a few women, just to let you, the audience, know that 
Bill cheats as often as he can and in front of Babe. This dinner party scene really has Truman Capote, us seeing for the first time, singing for his supper. He has got one chance to make a first impression and he is going to use that one chance for all it is worth. Again, making that connection with Babe. This dinner party really, really real. I have Truman Capote writing to his friend, Cecil Beaton. This is from Too Brief a Treat, The Letters of Truman Capote, once again edited by Gerald Clark. This letter is dated February 7th, 1955. Darling Cecil, Truman writes, Bless you for the sweet letter. It is more than I deserve, for I should have written you long ago, but these last months have left me rather unnerved and I'm only just coming back into focus. The whole experience with House of Flowers was so unbelievable, really excruciating, and the only good thing about it is that I may make some money as the show seems to be quite a hit. House of Flowers is a Truman Capote play. It had opened at Broadway's Alvin Theater December 30th, 1954. It was not a hit, though, and... The show ends up closing May 22, 1955. Truman continues, But at least my sense of humor has survived, and I can regale you endlessly with little anecdotes concerning one and all. I went to Jamaica with the William Paley's for a holiday, which was very pleasant but did not last long enough. Then I went to California for a week, Stayed with David, Selznick, and Jennifer, Jones, his wife. She is back in fine spirit and has gone to Hong Kong to make a film. This film would be Love is a Many Splendored Thing, co-starring William Holden. Truman continues, Now I have no plans at all until May when we leave for the summer in Italy, where I hope you will plan to spend your annual holiday. I saw Greta Garbo last night at a party, looking extremely well though her hair seemed a peculiar color, sort of a blondish lavender. I think she must have dyed it. <laughs> the letter does go on, but the dinner party at that scene in time, yes, completely happened, and the supper scene is pretty amazing. Truman really does <laughs> spill the tea as he is singing for his supper, not for the first time in his life, but in the series, yes. It is interesting here when Truman talks about people are not careful and the question comes up of who do you tell your secrets to? This fictional character, Louisa Firth, says she never trusts a writer. And Truman, <laughs> after agreeing, says why not? The storyteller has the last word, she says, and I would never let that happen. And Truman follows up, who should have the last word? And Louisa gets down to it. She'll say the person who has the power has the last word, not those who write clever stories. But the ones with the power. Her character cuts this cutting glance to Bill Paley in the series. And babe, Paley taking it all in stride. And then this is amazing. Jennifer Jones at this dinner party, she talks about how Truman Capote knows more than anyone else from Hair and Makeup, where all the gossip was talked about on Beat the Devil. This is a 1953 film directed by John Huston, co-starring Humphrey Bogart and Jennifer Jones. 
The screenplay for Beat the Devil was co-written by Truman Capote, who mostly is hanging out in his hotel, but he has all the gossip. Jennifer Jones says his secret is in seduction. And Truman responds, no, (laughs) the secret is in memory. Through this cast of characters in many ways, from Beat the Devil, the film, Jennifer Jones, Humphrey Bogart, John Huston, really kind of incredible. In 1953, when it's filmed, we're almost to the point of getting to the meeting of Dominic Dunn and Humphrey Bogart. This particular film, Beat the Devil, is not the point of this episode, but it is quite a delightful story of how that rolls down. I do have a unexpected surprise, not done yet episode coming for you right after this episode. Patreon folks, stay tuned for that one. Some interesting spider webs that are too good not to share about Humphrey Bogart, Jennifer Jones, John Huston, Truman Capote, Stephen Sondheim, and others. This is probably a terrific time to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to get in to that dinner, the Black Swan event that it is. Back in just a moment, friends. Oh, this scene really is delightful. So Truman singing for his supper and Babe is enchanted by his stories. And here it's all going to come down. It's all happening. It's all happening really throughout every scene, but let's go back to Truman writing from February 1955. He went to visit with the Paleys. He did go to David O. Selznick and Jennifer Jones. The dinner scene here doesn't happen the way it happens within Feud. Billy Woodward's murder does not take place until October 30th, 1955, long after that dinner party. Just note that. I'm certain the conversation, folding the cheese, so to speak, through the years happen, but you only have so many hours in a television series, they are not congruent in the timeline. Really good scene still, and something interesting that's uncovered in this one as it sets to the October 30th, 1955 Woodward murder into action. Chekhov's gun, Black Swan event same thing or not. Maybe a little here, at least as I see it when you know the razzle-dazzle. Everybody's in for the good story, most especially Babe. And here these questions come up about, we've been talking about society and what does it mean to be important? Bill will ask, Truman, is there anything you know that we don't? Because we know an awful lot. Oh, the peals and peals of laughter From Truman and from me, really. Again, it doesn't happen in real time this way, although something like this certainly did unfold. The series calls this 1955. Perhaps that is the same year Bill's affair with Marie Harriman. 1955 is the year of Babe Paley meeting Truman Capote. It is also the year of the Woodward murder. My contention here is I can really see Truman Capote making it a little bit of a backslide one decade. The title of his writing and answered prayers is Lakote Basque 1965. Maybe everything did happen in 65, which he published in 75, or maybe, just maybe, it all harkens back to 1955. Paley's affair would have been happening at the same time as the Woodward 
murder or after effect. I really do think it all comes from the mid-50s, what Truman is writing about so many years later. Truman really has had, in 1975 when Answered Prayers is published, 20 years to figure out how he wants to write about Anne Woodward, noted as Anne Hopkins in Answered Prayers. I can sort of see this manifestation. I got a lot of reasons for that timeline slip, but let us continue. We return to that dinner party, and Bill wants to know, is there anything that you know that we don't? And Truman Capote says, you don't know this. There is a murderer walking free, and you all know her. And I'm going to tell her story. Socialite, be level, she married up. She was going to divorce him, and she blew him away. Now, in... November of 1955, this doesn't make even too much of a mark on Truman Capote. He will write again to Cecil Beaton, November 12th, 1955. Only mention of Ann Woodward in his letters. Only mentioned here one time, Ann Woodward, that she's occupying the headlines, and it made everybody really uncomfortable because they had to change restaurants. Hang on to that. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But Truman's kind of blasé. He's more worried about where they're going to go have lunch with the smart set than being concerned about the mystery of Anne Woodward. Truman won't stay all that blasé about it, though, as we know in the future. This story is the pivot point from 1955 of Truman Capote's Answered Prayers. Also the pivot point, the launching place for Dominic Dunn's first novel, the two Mrs. Grenvilles with Basil Plant as its Truman-esque-like narrator. Everybody knows that Truman is talking about Anne Woodward, and the questions come up. Was it a tragic accident, a burglary, the police know? Billy's mother paid for it to go away. Truman unfolds it all. Longtime listeners will know we covered the Billy Woodward murder arc and its spiderwebs in episodes 28, 29, and 30 here on the main feed, as well as attached not done yet. So it really does come together when we take it bit by bit. I am not going to retell the entire story of the Woodward murders. We've done it. But I do want to mention here that Anne Woodward in life was blonde, very blonde. I find it a little surprising here, and maybe it's for cinematic appeal that the choice was made, but why not put Demi Moore appearing as Anne Woodward in a wig? If you don't want to dye your hair, totally get it, but Anne Woodward famously was blonde. That is one of the weirder bits of representation that I've seen that oh, threw me off a little bit. Another one here as it relates to Anne Woodward, her actual death scene did not play out the way it did in the series. There was no really no reason to set it outside. The real scene and the way it happened was fairly tragic. We'll get to that also. Demi Moore, though, heck of an actress. She's doing great in the backdrop of these scenes. And here at the dinner party at Bill and Babes, Truman is revealing the essential through line of the story in a pretty concise way. How it goes down and all of its versions. The setup is right here on the stage already, and Truman Capote's conclusions, the same as our man Nick's many, many years later, is that Elsie Woodward, Billy's mother, 
Anne's mother-in-law pulls strings to cover the whole sordid thing up. Also, they talk about this being in Watch Hill. The location of the Woodward murder actually takes place in Oyster Bay. That night, the night of the shooting of Billy Woodward, there was a dinner party that took place at Edith Baker's home. Edith Baker, very good friend of Billy Woodward's mother, also the mother Edith Baker was of Billy Woodward's very best friend, who has died long before this party. Edith Baker has given this dinner party in honor of Wallace Simpson, the Duchess of Windsor. Just make a note of that. Both Truman Capote and Dominic Dunn sing for their supper at the best of tables throughout the decades. They each kind of know the score. Truman Capote says Bang Bang got away with it, and longtime listeners perhaps remember why and how that name happened. Dominic Dunn actually reveals to us in his coverage about the Von Bulow case, Dunn hints a little bit at this. We talked about the Von Bulows from episodes 133 to 137, but Dominic Dunn, our man, writes about Klaus. Tall and handsome with an eye for the right social contacts, Von Bulow soon knew all the people who mattered. In San Moritz, he had an affair with socialite Anne Woodward after she killed her husband. What? Backing up the bus again, Klaus Von Bulow does have an affair with Anne Woodward in 1956, the year after she shoots her husband and the beginning of the feud with Truman. It goes this far back. Klaus and Anne have an affair in San Moritz, and this acrimony develops here. There's an excellent book by Roseanne Montillo called Deliberate Cruelty, and she does a great job describing how this whole scene goes down. Everything really does connect around here from Deliberate Cruelty. Anne Woodward had resolved to live a quiet life in Europe where she could mourn her late husband, Billy Woodward, far from the matting crowd of the American press. The town of San Moritz, high in the Swiss Alps, was certainly an unusual place to retreat to. Renowned for its winter sports, popular as a spa hamlet, and exclusive as a community where entertainers, celebrities, and assorted socialites gathered, San Moritz was a lesser European sun around which various society moons revolved. While summer tourism was popular, it was in winter that this small city shined. Luminaries descended in head-to-toe furs in the daytime and flashy jewels at night, their diamonds and bangles competing with the glittering snow. In the fall of 1956, Anne Woodward was once again the center of attention as she sat down for dinner at one of Europe's most elite restaurants. Back in the United States, those familiar with Anne Woodward, and lately there were few who had not heard of her, whether over lunch at the Colony on New York's Upper East Side or on the front pages of tabloids, believed that she had been banished to Europe by her formidable mother-in-law, Elsie Woodward, who was now likely leading a lonely life without family or friends, much less a lover, with plenty of time to reflect on the transgressions that had forced her into exile. 
But as Truman Capote watched her from a table across the restaurant, he saw that she was not the solitary widow they expected. Capote was not only surprised to see her in this particular location, but astonished to see her in the company of a man, which was a cause for raised eyebrows, considering that she had entered widowhood by her own hand not so very long ago. But Anne Woodward did not seem rattled by the patron staring with obvious disdain as she exchanged languorous looks with her companion. Truman recognized the man she was with, Klaus von Bülow. A noted womanizer, the tall and handsome von Bülow had committed himself to the effort of charming a long list of social contacts and prided himself on his cultivation of illustrious connections, much as Anne herself had done during her early years in New York. Anne found in von Bülow an amusing companion, younger than herself, a man with a past as colorful as her own, if not more so. The rumors surrounding him were dark, that he was a necrophile, that he had killed his mother and stashed her body on ice, that somehow he was still embroiled in espionage, that as a youth he attended Hermann Goring's wedding. Von Bülow could rebut most of the gossip if he ever found himself in the mood to explain, which was rare. Most of the time he shrugged away the stories with a smirk, which made him even more beguiling to many. Truman Capote had, of course, heard all about Billy Woodward's murder when it happened back on Long Island. On November 15, 1955, not two weeks after Billy's death, Truman had written to his friend, the photographer Cecil Beaton, that Anne Woodward continues to occupy the front pages. Truman Capote found Anne Woodward interesting and decorous, perhaps, certainly audacious for showing herself in public so soon after being accused of killing her husband, and with a man who appeared to be a lover. He continued to stare, but at a certain point, he was compelled to get up from his table and walk toward Anne Woodward. He must have also had a suspicion that the encounter, however short, would annoy her, if not downright distress her, which likely increased his delight at his own mischief. As he arrived at the table, Anne immediately got up from her chair, angry that she should have been disturbed during her meal. A short conversation followed, during which apparently Anne called Truman a little fag. Now, this was not the first time that Truman had been insulted for his sexual orientation, nor would it be the last. But with the insult coming from Anne Woodward, an accused killer, he took more offense to the jab than he usually did. He returned the slur by wagging his finger at her and calling her Mrs. Bang Bang, a moniker that would stick to her for the rest of her days. After leaving San Moritz, he would repeat the story of how he had met the notorious Anne Woodward whenever the opportunity presented itself, embellishing this tale and relishing each detail. Anne Woodward eventually came to learn that Truman was constantly talking about her. She grew to despise the man she referred to as a little toad, but she also should have known that he was dangerous. He once confessed, 
I'm about as tall as a shotgun and just as nasty. He was especially keen to hurt those who hurt him. An insult to his sexuality would sharpen his wit. In later years, Truman's friend, Lee Radziwill, echoed Anne Woodward's words when Truman Capote was in a spat with his novelist rival Gore Vidal. What does it matter? Radziwill told the reporter Liz Smith. They are just a couple of fags. When Truman learned of that conversation and was asked about it during a televised interview, he smiled sardonically and said, I'll tell you something about fags, especially Southern fags. We is mean. A Southern fag is meaner than the meanest rattler. We just can't keep our mouth shut. A little bit of foreshadowing there, friends. Wrapping up from deliberate cruelty, in the years that followed their encounter in the restaurant in San Moritz, the lives of Anne Woodward and Truman Capote would occasionally converge. Anne would drift a wan figure on the outskirts of the social world that had once admitted her, however reluctantly. Truman, a literary bad boy, who built on his early success and went on to write what he called the nonfiction novel in Cold Blood, became more and more of an ornamental fixture, gadfly, commentator, walker, and chronicler of the New York social world that centered on Lakote Basque and shunned Anne. The one was the striking socialite whose life had gone wrong with the killing of her husband, and the other was a small-town southern homosexual of literary brilliance. The two were not that different. Both had overcome hard-scrabble, unsteady, fraught childhoods. Both had cajoled, clawed, and charmed their way into the elite circles they sought to enter. Both were vulnerable and mean. Both were familiar with violence and the violence that caused the death of Billy Woodward would, as recounted by Truman Capote in 1975, incite fresh violence that would ultimately destroy them both. What began with insults in San Moritz would end in death for one and ignominy for the other. We're going to put in one more quick break here when we come back. We are going to wrap up Block B with Truman Capote and Babe Paley making their bond. Be right back. Okay, after this Black Swan event dinner party, all the Ann Woodward stuff, again, Chekhov's gun just right there. Truman seeing Bill cheating, coming in to connect with Babe, not only knowing about Bill's current adultery, but also Babe's backstory. Both are legendary, really, Bill's philandering. But Truman Capote at this point knows about Babe's car accident. He knows about her false teeth and her reconstructive surgery. We did cover Babe in her own Swans episode back episode 102 on the main feed. But Babe is the resurrected swan from an ugly duckling. That accident was a blessing and huzzah! Now there's something else. You have a new best friend. In that notebook... Babe says she writes everything she does wrong and everything I can do better. Let's hearken back to last episode, Effortlessness is a Myth. Again, there's so much foreshadowing in this one. Our mistakes are what make us interesting. It's never about perfection. 
We are going to be close friends, Truman says. I know these things. I'm witchy. (laughs) Of course he does. Truman Capote is Truman Capote, the essential swan, his own center swan in the middle of his own coterie that he builds through time that he has been building since he was born. Truman is no idiot. He knows exactly who is playing in Babe's Pond. He's been on the pond of high society in one way or another since Lily May, renamed Nina, brought little Truman to New York in his childhood after an early start in Alabama with his aunts and Harper Lee. I plant this little bit here as it is all going to come back around in the background of I think what's being set up, which means more stories for you. But officially... We've made it to the end of Block B. It's time for another commercial break. Thank you for joining me for this one. We are going to continue swimming with the swans on the next Done and Done with Block C and D. Each episode can't take this many episodes to cover. I will condense it. I got real excited about episode one, but holy cats, I really want to watch the rest of them. The remainder of Alicia's version of the pilot, episode one, will drop for you Monday. As this is dropping and as a little surprise in between, if you are looking to get any main feed done and done episode earlier and ad-free, they can be yours for $2 a month. Patreon.com slash done and done is the place to go. Find out more information about that. Five bucks a month on Patreon will get you all of the not-done-yet bonus episodes. Again, friends, stay in for the surprise about the 1953 Beat the Devil Spiderwebs. So, so sticky. I am dropping it like it's hot, apparently, this week. Thank you, one and all, for tuning in, spending your time with me and your support in all the ways, telling your friends your kind emails and reviews. I cannot wait to continue this mystery with you until we meet again. Stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.